Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Josie Warden, Head of Regenerative Design here at the RSA, and I'm really delighted to welcome you to today's online event. And I'm super pleased to have the chance today to talk to Sophie Tannhauser. Sophie is a writer and artist and teaches in the writing department of the Pratt Institute in New York. She has a special interest in textiles and vintage clothing and her research has seen her earn scholarships from Fulbright, McDowell and New Cross, among others. And she's also the author of a brilliant book, Worn, A People's History of Clothing, which we're going to be talking about today. It's a really fascinating look at human history, cleverly woven together through the story of five different fibres and illustrates just how intertwined the history of our clothing is with agriculture, industrialization, slavery, imperialism, geography, and many more elements of life. And so I'm really looking forward to talking to Sophie today about some of that. Um, if those of you watching along online would like to join the conversation on the, about the event on Twitter, then please do and use the hashtag RSA clothing, or you can also join here in the YouTube chat. So thank you so much for joining us, Sophie. It's great to have you. Thanks, Josie. I'm really excited to be here. So I think I read this as a story of history, but also um, of clothing, but also of economics. And you talk a lot about the different kind of economic ideals that have been um, through through the world, through mercantilism, through communism, capitalism. Um, but with clothing and textiles really being at the forefront of some of those shifting economic ideals, do you think clothing has a particularly special role economically? And, and why is that, if so? That's a really big question, and I think the answer, <laughs> the answer is definitely yes. Um, and I could say, I mean, a few things about that. Um, I mean, one, if we want to just dive right into the story of British imperialism, I think that um, one of the ways I've heard it argued is that once Britain developed the industrial technology necessary to make cotton textiles, there was a ready market that existed all over the world for that commodity because people already knew what cloth was. People already wanted cloth. So to, to sell cloth to any community was possible in a way that, say, um, an engine or a railroad. There was no market for certain things until certain infrastructures were developed, but textiles were already used. So it was a super powerful kind of wedge um, of a commodity to allow Britain to transform its already vast empire into something even more economically significant, I think. So that's maybe one way to think about it is that when it became possible to produce textiles industrially, it was an incredibly potent commodity with which to gain more economic power globally. But I think another way to think about um, textiles is that they're essential to, I mean, want to say they're essential to human life but most most um you know people wear clothing and have done for quite a long time uh, some anthropologists think that clothing was a technology that allowed people to um expand the range of climates in which they were able to live you know putting on furs allowed allowed early uh early humans to to expand the range in which they could exist. So it is pretty fundamental to human civilizations to make textiles and wear them in a similar way that it is to have food. But I think that textiles are, um, they're like shelf stable, right? So you can, you can put a bunch of textiles on a caravan and take it to, uh, if we're talking about like early nomadic trading, that's also, I think, maybe partly um, 
what makes um, clothing today as well so powerful as a commodity. I mean, now, of course, we, tr we, we trade um, like grapes across oceans. So it's not as though we don't have the technological capacity today to also trade vegetables and grains, you know, readily across the earth. But I think for a long time, textiles have been really something you can pack, something you can trade relatively easily. So they're a huge zone of human ec economic activity in the very local scale from very early on. And I think because of a couple of these qualities, maybe they became early and earlier involved in global economic life. Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, those, as you say, those qualities that they have that maybe other elements don't have that have kind of put them at the forefront. Um, but it's interesting because so my background's also in textiles, and I find that today, um, particularly being in the UK, there's a sense that textiles or fashion is kind of a slightly marginalised conversation. That it's not necessarily the heart of kind of what what's important in kind of building our economy. Um, and I wonder if there's an element of um, the role of kind of women's labour in that in that element of it too. And you talk really interestingly about how textiles and, and um, fashion have played a role in women's labour, women's role in the economy and women's status. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe maybe particularly some of the stories that you talk about in your chapter on linen. Mm, yeah, well, it's a huge hobby horse of mine. I mean, I think even in the process of publicizing this book, particularly in the US, I've been thinking about this question because it, in, in the question of how to describe a book, you come across reader expectation, I think. And I wanted this book to feel to a reader as though it were about war and economics and, you know, things that we associate with real history, aka more masculine histories. And, um, and I think that's, yeah, a kind of defensive reaction on my part because of the reality that when you say clothing, people think insignificant because women, I think. I mean, I think it is that direct. And um, of course that bothers me. So one of the things that I tried to do in the chapter or the section about linen was to think about women's labor from the perspective of the evolution of a cash economy. So particularly the, the, the setting that I take is England and um, early colonial um, US and in, 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 the, in the kind of early part of that section, <clears throat> I try to tell the story of guilds and of early linen guilds and of how when guilds became threatened by kind of proto-capitalist um, trade networks, so people kind of casing the countryside to buy up home workers, cloth to sell on foreign markets, threatening the guilds that were really trying to be the only ones producing linen and get a fair price, um, how that kind of pressure on guilds caused them to then sort of turn on women and expel women from guilds and also the, the broader um, kind of economic cultural movement to expel women from market activity at the very moment that it became essential to have cash. So kind of level upon level of disruption and how the way that women's labor is valued and configured is never separate from the broader disruptions that are happening 
to a community. And I think that's true now in parts of the world that when communities are getting shoved off of the commons, whether that is literally shoved off of land or out of certain economic activities, women are often the first to get shunted to the side. So I, I was hoping to look at women's labor before the advent of, of the wage. And then as the wage becomes the mechanism by which one is sustained, um, where are women positioned at that very moment? And that story has a lot to do with textiles. And so I kind of started with the weaving guild of linen, but then really in that section wanted to get to the moment when the industrial revolution changes how cloth is made. And, and I think, I mean, I think the industrial revolution is primarily a fabric revolution. And I think it evokes in the image of the steam engine and men in overalls, or I don't know what you call them in the UK, maybe overalls as well. But, um, but, but to me, the industrial revolution, first and foremost, is a revolution in the way textiles are produced. And its workers are women and children. They're not like strapping young men. So I, I think that to me, feminizing the historical sense of the industrial revolution was important, at least for myself to kind of grasp what the driver was economically of that huge upheaval in the way that goods are traded and produced. Yeah, I think that I really like that phrase, like feminizing the industrial revolution, because it does come along with those connotations of, um, of masculinity, but then also how that spreads into the way we um, then kind of industrialized and expanded abroad and looked at kind of those changes. And I, there was a piece towards the end of your book, I think it was in the conclusion, when you talk about um, perhaps clothing telling truer stories about history than maybe we tell ourselves, and the sense that you talk a bit about the growing up with kind of the myth of progress and that sense of, um, of change being always kind of in one direction. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how Kind of exploring the the way that the textile trade has, has has moved around the world has given you a different perspective on on kind of progress and the way that we we move forward as a society yeah i i think that one moment for me that was important was um in 2013 when there was that massive factory collapse in dhaka and bangladesh i was already working on this book or what would become this book and I was reading all the op-eds that were coming out at the time and they really angered me. And I remember that because my thesis advisor told me it was the narcissism of small differences. And I think that's probably true, but it was exciting on the one hand because people were suddenly talking about the garment industry in a way that they hadn't been much in the States anyways. But the comparison that everyone was drawing was to this other big factory fire in the States in 1911, the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire, which is like a very famous moment. I mean, it's one of the only things that I think a layman in the US could tell you, including myself about garment history. Oh, Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire, 1911. And the conclusion that was being drawn was, well, you know, that happened in 1911 and this is happening in 2013. So pretty much, yes, garment workers are doomed to work in unstable structures and they will die occasionally. And it's how we do, like it's how we do things. And that's not true. In fact, if you look at the whole middle of the 20th century in the US, you'll see that um, garment work was a fabulous middle-class job because of the hard work of unionists, mostly women unionists who had raised this occupation to the level of a, of a decent um, form of labor. So to me that, 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 oh, things got better and then they got worse is a much more damning story for the way that 
a combination of U.S. foreign policy and, you know, internal politics destroyed something really good that had been very hard fought. So I think, yeah, the myth of progress is extremely devious. And I mean, I even went to a museum in New Hampshire. It was a textile museum in what was once the Merrimack Mills. And they had some stone tools made by um, the Native American tribe of that region. And it said in the caption, this tribe made stone tools. They were the region's first industrialists. <laughs> and I was like, that is, that is so um, deceptive. And then they moved you know, to the story of the mills and it was this great victory, but no mention of what the town is now, which is this hollow husk where the main industry is rehabs for heroin addicts. Like it's a completely gutted town and, and it's not a progress narrative. It's the story of a town that put a huge dam on its river, destroyed all its fish, created a miles of cloth every day, and then collapsed when the industry moved overseas. So it's very difficult to wrest a progress narrative out of, but the museum still tries. So it's very powerful, I think, as a myth in the US. And to me, it is a myth that obscures the reality of history. And I think it's important to look at ways in which things have gotten better and then gotten much worse if we're going to be at all clear-minded about how we go about creating conditions for laborers that are not deadly in 2022. Yeah, I think I think that ties into the sense, I think I, in growing up in the UK too, the, the sort of sense that we used to have this particular kind of industry and it's it's a, a positive thing that, that that kind of left our shores and, and is helping us where. And I think it's really interesting for me to hear the history of this told from, from a US perspective, because I didn't know a lot about the kind of the changes that had happened there. I noticed at the beginning of the book, I think you, you lived in a place called Falmouth, and I lived in a place called Falmouth in the UK. And I think there's something really interesting, obviously that's not a coincidence, that's about that sense of kind of um, colonialism and the, the kind of the shifting of, of, um, of the kind of uh, industries abroad as well. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the the history of kind of colonialism, particularly in this sense, and you bring that out in a lot of your your chapter around Cotton and how that shifted the the way things are working in in what became what America. Um, well, that's yeah, another big question. I, you're really heavy heavy hitter. Um, I guess I mean one thing I could say is that I think what I found myself dealing with a lot in thinking about the contemporary garment trade was sort of multiple layers of colonialism. So in southern India, for example, looking at like a, at an initial wave of, of an colonial experience, but you know, by, by the British, and what that had done to destroy the local industry, because one of the stories that I tell is how India was once, you know, this incredible producer of cotton textiles that were the most valued cotton textiles in the world and how the British kind of systematically destroyed that industry so that they could use um, raw cotton from India and sell finished cotton goods to India. And now, you know, there'll be really low paying jobs in a, in a spinning factory being provided to rural women in Tamil Nadu. And the narrative is, isn't this wonderful? We're helping these women escape starvation, you know, without, without this job, who knows where they'd be, which works if you ignore the primary wave of colonization that rendered these women, you know, indigent, but it, it doesn't work if you think about that history. So now, you know, regions like that are kind of, and, and in India too, 
there was a union story, like that there was a highly unionized textile industry in India up until the 80s. So it's, it's again there, a story of progress and then um, kind of decline on, on from the perspective of the worker in any, in any case. So I think in terms of the relationship between the US and England, I, I've always been kind of curious about the women's movement and why, why the women's movement emerged in the UK and the US at the time that it did and what the relationship of that movement <clears throat> was to the industrialization of textiles. I think that in fact might've been, <clears throat> sorry, in a way the origin point <clears throat> of this whole interrogation. And I don't know that I've cracked it or found the answer, but I have to say that I, I find that really striking um, what it meant for women to be suddenly both sort of freed from a particular position in a kind of subsistence farming economy by the advent of industrial textile production and then marginalized within it. I don't know, I, I, I think I'm wandering a little bit, but um, I, I just wanted to maybe note since you asked that for me privately, that question animated this book and I, I'm not exactly sure why that is, but it is. That's really interesting. Yeah, I wonder on that, what, what kind of drew you into, into looking at clothing and textiles um, in, your, in your kind of personal story? Well, I like clothes, I always have. I liked them as a kid, I like playing dress up. And I think at a certain point I became um, indignant maybe let's say, or disgusted, let's say, to take it even further with what I was, what we were all wearing. Um, I think this was around um, my sophomore year of college that there was this particular skirt that was popular in the US. So it was like very low cut and very short and very limp. It had like a ruffle. It was Giselle Bunchen popularized it and it looked good kind of on her, but really on almost no one else. And it was just such a pathetic kind of structureless piece of fabric. And I was in college and really, you know, intelligent women were wearing the skirt and I thought like, what, what is happening here? And um, I, it was around that time that I was introduced to a couple of um, kind of British Victorian intellectuals like Ruskin, reading Ruskin actually and, and, and William Morris, I think helped me to feel that sometimes when you look at something and it bothers you, um, it's because it's bad. <laughs> I mean, I, I felt at first that this kind of aesthetic distaste I had was just, I don't know, snobism or, you know, it's very surface, but I, I think reading, reading those two guys um, and, and having them say, you know, if you look at a table and it's ugly, it's because probably something in the social mechanism is ugly as well. And taking aesthetics seriously enough to interrogate the mode of production that produced the object that is causing you aesthetic distress, like that kind of tipped me off to something. And I started thinking, well, what is cotton? I mean, what's the story with that? Let me think, you know, let me go through my Rolodex. Well, there's the story of slavery in the American South. There's a story of British in India. What are, you know, how are garments made? I have this hazy conception that they're made in sweatshops in Indonesia somewhere. And every once in a while, we have a freak out about that in the US because there's children making our shoes and then we forget about it. Like, hmm, maybe, maybe if I start piecing these stories together, there's actually something 
bigger behind the fact that this skirt really bothers me. And um, that just turned out to gather more and more speed, I think, for me. Um, it wasn't in college that I started working on the project, but that's, I think, where I made the made, made the um, transition from feeling that the, the clothes of my contemporaries were wearing bothered me because there was something wrong with me to feeling like the clothes bothered me because there was something wrong with the global system of production. And so much later when I kind of had the, I don't know, attention span, let's say, to devote myself to kind of a larger work of, um, of nonfiction writing, this was to me obviously going to be the subject. And I always wanted someone else to do it, to be honest. I was waiting for somebody else to do it. And there was a book that came out in the US um, called Empire of Cotton by a historian named Sven Beckert. And uh, when that book came out, I thought, oh, good, someone else did it. I don't need to, <laughs> to do it. And, and I read it and I thought it was um, a, hu I mean, a huge work of scholarship and a really helpful description of how central cotton was to the formation of the global economy. But I didn't feel that women were at the center of it. And that was the piece that I, I, I had to... I don't know if correct, that, that was the piece where I thought, okay, I still have a job, I think, because unless you think very seriously about women's labor, alongside of the story of imperialism and alongside of the story of environmental degradation, the, the complete story can't be told. That's really fascinating to hear that kind of, that origin story of where things came from. Um, and you say it also at one point in the book that um, making good cloth can't happen in isolation. And that feels like, again, that, that sort of draws on that sense of all those things that you've learned. Can you talk a little bit what you think about what is needed for good cloth and who could support that to happen? <clears throat> um, I was actually at a conference yesterday um, on Zoom, but it was put on by a textile school in North Carolina. And there was a lot of, a lot of people there involved in interesting stuff um, using hemp or oranges or seaweed. It was like, pretty exciting, actually. Um, but I think that one very basic thing that's involved is, um, I mean, I think that um, textile, textiles are ultimately an expression of a form of agriculture. So predominantly now our, our, text, our um, garments as a globe are made of cotton and petroleum, essentially. Those are like the two most common fabrics. We do use linen and wool and silk and other things, but those are the big ones. So if we just look at how cotton is produced, what kind of inputs it requires, how it leaves the land. I mean, looking at it as an agricultural product, I think is a really interesting place to begin because it is one. And the way that we make cotton now predominantly is one that strips land of its productive capacity and in general also immiserates the people that are involved in growing it. Not, um, you know, not completely, but I think overall it, it doesn't seem to be a source of sustenance for the people that are producing it so much as a source of kind of um, extraction of both the productive capacity of the land and the workers involved in growing it. So I think that's um, one thing <clears throat> we, we can insist on when we think about envisioning um, good cloth is how could, as an agricultural product, this um, cloth be enriching the land as opposed to stripping it of its nutrients? Because ultimately, you know, there's a carbon cycle that needs to equal out in agriculture 
and traditional systems in, of agriculture in the UK. I mean, it was it was interesting going to Cumbria a couple of years ago to go to Woolfest, where people are really taking seriously what it means to put carbon back into the land instead of taking it out. And I was reading um, a history of Cumbrian agriculture and just the level of care that was put into putting lime on the soil for, you know, for its health in 100 years, the way that, or 200 years, the way that agriculture was done, you know, up until not so long ago, up until maybe a couple hundred years ago, like the orientation in agriculture was to, to, to care for the productive health of the land for really a long time going forward. So I think it's relatively new that the way of doing agriculture that we kind of use globally is not really taking that con into consideration at all. So that's on the, on the agricultural side, I think important. And then on the labor side, I think we could ask that good cloth is made by people who are being fairly compensated as a bare minimum. But to me, and this is where maybe I feel a bit utopian or maybe um, kind of, yeah, get a little bit out of the realm of just being a, I don't know, basically ethical and have something a little bit more to me demanding is that I think the people that are making fabric should also have creative um, freedom because it's an amazingly creative act to make clothing or textiles historically, you know, to, to weave, to sew, to embroider. There's so much, um, there's so much space there for an individual to express their genius their individual genius. And so I, I, my hope would be also that Good Cloth is creating opportunities. And, and this is maybe something that I really did get from Ruskin, I, I think ultimately is, is that if you have a lot of workers just executing the plan of a designer as kind of drones, the results will be impoverished because every individual person has good ideas. And if they're allowed to use those good ideas in the making of an object, then it's going to be nicer for them and for the object. So I think that's the, for me, the utopian ideal that I, I hold up when I think about what good cloth could be. Sounds brilliant. I think, yeah, I really was interested too in the way in the book, it feels like there's a, a sort of thread. It's really hard not to use textile puns when doing it's it's so much in language. Um, a thread that runs through that is around the um, the abstraction of place as well from from cloth and and um, textile cultures being totally rooted in place in culture and identity and landscape into this kind of globalized but often quite generic sense we have now. And there's so many debates about in tech within sustainability in textiles of like is this cloth better than this cloth? But actually, it feels like the, the root question of what's right for place and what's right for like, those people feels really important. Um, and similarly, it, it's a it's a space that is often um, accused of appropriating culture through through taking styles of different clothing and kind of presenting them in a in a different way. But again, maybe that's to do with that sense of not giving agency to to places to kind of have that creativity. Instead, we're just taking it from one place and plonking it in another. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> in the book I. Um use the example of a t-shirt that I saw being made in Southern India that said Wisconsin on it and had like a fishing scene, which was just um, really too much for me there because it was, it was literally a fish jumping out of the water on the t-shirt and in this region of Southern India that is 
drought stricken, you know, and that the cotton is sucking water up out of the soil and and the dye used on that shirt is kind of being pumped into the into the soil as well. So it was it was too ironic not to bring into the text. Um, but that maybe that's partly to say that we still feel as though clothing should signal locale, I think, very much. And and it's um I mean, I think all over the world there's for I'm, I'm thinking of tourist shops and how the, there's so often some gesture towards having a local costume on sale, even if that is made in Vietnam, even though it's being sold in, I don't know, um, New York. We want to believe that you can go to a place and buy something that you can only buy there. Still, we really want to believe that. I mean, and that's true to a point. When I was in Cumbria, I, I bought a sweater that was made with Wensleydale long wool, um, wool, and it was really to me an amazing thing that this came from Cumbria very clearly, and it couldn't have come from anywhere else. But I think that globalization, that process of homogenization and globalization, does rest on an enormous amount of violence, and that was the story that I wanted to tell, really. Um, in addition to you know, handful of other stories, but. I think it's happened by stages. And I think one of the stages was kind of the advent of British imperial power and the industrial revolution and cotton textiles be becoming this globally traded commodity. But another phase of the story, I think had a lot to do with American imperial power in the post-war period and how the US kind of set up um, industries in the Far East to, as part of communist containment strategy. and. And, and did a lot of work to set up what we now have, which is a, a system where um, a corporation could really go anywhere in the world quite easily to find labor. And so it's hard to imagine how to return to any kind of localism. And it's very politically fretful for me anyways. I mean, Donald Trump was the first president in decades to, to argue for tariff walls. And that was really awkward for me because I've thought a lot about that and and I would it, it's sort of the I, I guess I'm doing it right now to a point but I would never utter that in public because it's so awkward to have a thought in common with Donald Trump you know but it is hard to imagine how to support local industry without placing some limits on the complete effortlessness with which corporations are able to source globally use labor from anywhere at any time so it is an interesting predicament to think about how to foster local cloth making traditions without ending up with really ugly bedfellows, I guess. But I, I do think that to me, it's where some of the most exciting work is happening. And there's an organization called Fiber Shed in the US and, and globally that works to kind of connect producers. And I think there's a lot happening um, and the more I look for it, the more I see it of people working to form communities where, um, you know, raw materials can be traded locally and where people are working within a smaller kind of um, imprint to, to make textiles. Yeah, I wonder if that is a way that textile economies, again, are signaling a sort of new kind of economic thinking around that sense of locally rooted place appropriate but also not uh, yeah because I thought a lot about this too the sense of how it's not isolationist and or protectionist but like doing that within a place that also then contributes to the wider 
changes that we need to see because I know for example the kind of the conversation around carbon sequestration in place is so interesting because then it's not just about that place but how that benefits more widely so yeah I wonder if that could be a, a sort of new a new new economy that textiles are signaling I, I think it's yeah I'm, I'm, I'm I it sounds to me like you're as alive to the like weirdly contradicting variables as I am and it, it almost feels like a minefield to me but I, I do like to imagine it as a new burgeoning field I I had a period in my 20s where I, I well I would say it lasted almost the entirety of my 20s where I was obsessively trying to figure out what to wear I mean what would be if, if I really was I mean this is why I'm so glad I'm not in charge of utopian society <laughs> because I was trying to figure it out and I was trying to figure it out for myself and there was a certain moment where I realized okay well I can only wear how about I only wear khadi cloth you know because there's already in India a pretty you know um, there's a network of spinners and weavers that are making fabric according to this kind of principle of look you know of handwork and sustaining the artisan and sustaining the small agriculturalist. And it's a kind of textile I can really believe in. And I'll sew it myself. And then I was struck, but oh, okay, so you're gonna import Indian cotton and that's all you're going to wear? Like that's pretty, that doesn't make sense either. So I think that um, I have been asked a little bit, not as much as I feared for what the answer is to all of this. and. Um, I really don't know, but I really do believe it's a collective answer that thousands of people um, are working on right now because so many people are feeling this and thinking about this and doing really cool individual projects about this or starting business around this idea that it really matters to be able to make fabric that's, as you say, more rooted in a local in a place, in a local agriculture, in a local community of, of makers. And I, I do think the idea is alive and maybe needs, does need to be protected from the onslaught of kind of impossibly cheap goods that make it so difficult to make a living. I mean, I, that was another thing that I considered in my twenties was becoming, a, was having a small um, company. And I, I did like some very preliminary work towards that and then thought, this is really hard. This is really hard. And I really, really admire the people that do that work. And I've met a lot of them in my research and um, they're incredibly brave because it's not easy. So I do wish we could do sort of more to protect people who are trying to make, um, trying to make cloth or trying to make garments um, locally. And besides just say, look at them, they're, they're doing great. So yeah, it, it does get you pretty quickly from the question of a local producer to global politics. Yeah, and on, on that, I there's a whole chapter devoted to synthetics, which I think is really fascinating of how synthetics has completely changed the landscape of textiles. And we did a bit of research last year looking at just the volume of, of synthetic fibres in, um, particularly in UK fast fashion brands. And it's just staggeringly, overwhelmingly the biggest, you know, the biggest user. And I wonder if you could, yeah, explain a little bit about what you found from the, about the role of synthetics and how that sort of changed the course of, of fashion history and business within fashion. Yeah, well, I mean, they're incredibly capital intensive industries and the biggest makers of synthetics 
DuPont, um, they're, they're the, some of the biggest corporations in the world. It's incredibly capital intensive and concentrated. So that's one thing to note. And another thing to note, I think just on the level of aesthetics is that it's really easy to make a garment that is stretchy fit everyone. So I think there is a real direct kind of correlation between what maybe I sound snobby saying, but I, I believe is sort of like a kind of um, degradation in, in design quality for a lot of consumer garments with the fact that they're all able to stretch because a stretchy garment doesn't have to fit anyone in particular. It can just kind of fit, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't think it's as difficult of a design challenge. So I think it's enabled just on a very practical level, um, kind of the exponential expansion in, in wardrobes. But I think it also is cheap. And I think it's, um, it's not, it's not as, you just need oil in a factory, basically. I mean, it's a petroleum product, essentially. So you don't need to figure out a source of raw cotton. And I mean, maybe as we're seeing now, oil's not so secure, but I think what I wanted to do in this section on synthetics was to talk about synthetics proper and also talk about this um, kind of feature of the reality now that we've been speaking about, which is how we arrived at um, a global system of production that is so easy, is that is so porous, that is so easy to skip from country to country to country, which I think is um, something we take for granted, but that's not actually very old at all. In fact, it was only in 2005 that the multi-fiber trade arrangement um, was dissolved. I mean, up until 2005, there was global systems of tariffs deciding how many goods could be imported into the U.S. from various countries. And it wasn't until 2005 that in the U.S. the garment industry kind of gave out. So it's really policy dependent, you know, like we have choices on the level of policy about how we want goods to move around the world. So yeah, I, I think the this um, section about synthetics was by far the most depressing for me to write. And I've heard from readers that it's also very depressing to read and I'm sorry, but it is to me the story of, uh, of both kind of crushing the labor unions and just this incredible proliferation of goods because once you have a material cost that low, I, I think that, that, that labor costs and material costs work together. So. You know what I mean? Like the material costs of a synthetic garment are so minuscule that um, you're really just looking at getting the labor costs as low as you can. If you are already spending money on fabric, then you may as well spend a little money on labor as well because your price point's that much higher. So I, I don't know the exact ratio, you know, but just kind of anecdotally to have to consider the material cost for a garment, almost not at all is really significant in the way that big corporations do their decision-making about labor, I think. That's really interesting. Yeah, and it feels like with the, this kind of synthetics conversation, that sense that, I, mean, I wonder, just wondering if people have made the connection quite so clearly between both social and environmental impacts with synthetics and the way that maybe people have started to do with other fibers, because I think maybe we've been, they, the kind of conversation has not been there around synthetics for a long time and it's starting to be with the, with the connection between uh, kind of climate change and, and oil and gas extraction and fabric that's quite a new link I think but it's beginning to be made 
Um, I wonder if you had anything around that kind of the way the way synthetics have been marketed to us over history, but and how that's kind of affected our own idea of what they what they are and what they do. Yeah, well, as you're speaking, I was thinking class, 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 because it's so, I mean, they were initially marketed as luxury items, right? And I mean, the very early the rubber clothing is sort of like a, this, you know, flash in the pan, but it was kind of the first um, synthetic was this like very brief, you know, desire on the part of clothing manufacturers to be able to make clothing out of rubber. And that was initially marketed as extremely high fashion. And then, yeah, early early synthetics um, uh, corporations in the U.S. were partnering with Christian Dior and French Couture to make sure that they were early on setting up the public imagination to feel that, you know, nylon was luxury. And that um, that worked for a while. It worked until this kind of advent of massive overproduction as the U.S. kind of conglomerates were just pumping out more and more. And we also had, in the U.S. I'm speaking, I don't know exactly when the British public turned on synthetics, but in, in the U.S. it happened around the time of massive overproduction and people started to think of them as cheap. And, the, and then kind of like dramatically um, became revulsed by this material overnight that had been kind of the savior to a lot of people who found it much easier to launder synthetics, found it much easier to um, look professional without having to iron them. And so they were really beloved for a moment. And then the, the public turn against them was very swift. And one marketing study I read was incredibly interesting because as marketing got more and more granular in the U.S. and and down to the level of counties, you know, and trying to figure out all of the different types of consumer. I mean, now the level of data that is gathered about us would completely dwarf the level of granularity that this marketing um, kind of innovation was was doing. But basically, the, there was this. Um, this advent of a new kind of granular marketing where they're kind of putting consumers in smaller and smaller boxes. And one of the main, um, and, and so there's a lot of difference in taste, but it, it charted a moment where a very broad stratum had one thing in common and it was that they had turned away from synthetics and it was entirely about a socioeconomic class. So it was sort of a hippie thing at first in the US to turn away from synthetics and then it kind of became just a bougie thing. And, and it's st it still has this class marker. So I still feel awkward about saying I don't like to wear synthetic clothes like that to me immediately marks me as this kind of like bougie person it's 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 weird but that to me gets um okay there's just two more things I want to say I think that um synthetics producer have really successfully rebranded themselves in the last 10 or so years with microfibers and I mean if you look at Uniqlo ads it's wicking it's 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 heat tech it's cold it's cold it's hot it's just the magic of science and um I mean, microfibers are an incredible environmental problem that makes me kind of cry <laughs> to think about what they're doing to the ocean. But I think they've been really successful in um, rebranding what synthetics are and in making kind of um, imitating a broader range of, of natural fibers so that people want to wear the, this um, textile close to their skin in a way they might not have wanted to wear polyester, say, of a traditional kind of double knit 70s kind. So I do think there's been a successful rebrand. Um, but the thing, the other thing I want to say about class is that um, we run into this incredibly um, kind of 
powerful argument, I think, early on with clothes, um, the same thing happens with food in the US that if you're arguing for more expensive clothing, which is what the outcome would be of implementing any of the things that I would desire, you know, in terms of more sustainable agriculture, better pay for workers, let alone like creative rights for workers, all of that produces a more expensive garment. And then people say, well, that's elitist because, you know, like a working class American or even a middle class American can't afford that. And that's true. And that's why I think it's important to think about global equity um, and national equity like side by side, because as wealth disparity grows in the US and as wages stagnate, um, we do have a system where workers can't afford anything other than something made by an even more exploited foreign worker. So one supports the other and they work in tandem, I think. And I think it's, I don't know that it's a you know, anybody's, any evil genius's strategy, but I think the effect of having a massive influx of really cheap goods supports keeping wages in the U.S. impossibly low, because if you are making an impossibly low minimum wage but are still able to buy a lot of clothes, that's a very different circumstance than if you can't afford to buy clothes. It just becomes, poverty becomes, it just looks different, and I, and so I, I'm very interested in that, and I think it's, um, it's part of what makes the problem so difficult to address on only a local level because, because it's global at the same time as it's local, just fundamentally, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I feel like that is a question that is, is talked about so much in terms of changing fashion, the what does that mean for sort of the way fashion has been democratized, and I'm using air quotes there, for over the past sort of couple of decades particularly. And it's really interesting, I think you say it, 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 it great example of really a systemic challenge of the, the kind of, you can't look at those different bits in isolation, they are really, really interconnected. Um, and that, that, that was a great argument for explaining actually how you know, looking at cheaper clothing in one place is really tied to, to kind of the impacts on people in other places too. Um, and I think just, just kind of picking up on that element of conversation around class too, it feels like that's another thread that kind of goes through that sense of how clothing has, has always kind of, I guess, been an expression of, of social class and um, and your kind of social status. Um, and there were some really interesting elements, particularly within the story around silk, of kind of how silk became, you know, seen as uh, kind of how people could have uh, different statuses. And I wonder if there's anything else you would sort of add on, on the way that we use clothing to kind of identify and signal those things. Well, yeah, I think it's, it's endless. And um, I mean, I've been sort of left in the dust in the last couple of years with, um, TikTok and I, I, I mean, I can't speak, I, I think it's, it's like, it's one of the things that is a constant feature of the last few hundred years is this notion of acceleration, that things are just happening faster and faster and faster. And that's what I mean by I've been like left behind by TikTok in terms of now how fast something can move from an image on a phone to a factory somewhere else to being another image on a phone to another, it's just extraordinary. But the story that I um, that I told about silk uh, in the context of Europe was a story about a society moving from a, a feudal order into one where people really could have social mobility. And the, I mean, some historians uh, believe, particularly this historian Daniel Roche, who I relied upon very heavily in the section about Louis Quatorze, that 
once um, it was possible for uh, members of the of the bourgeoisie to wear silk and not just the aristocracy. So once um, you know, real prohibitions fell into disuse against the wearing of silk by the non-aristocratic classes. That was when the aristocracy had to get really creative and think, okay, well, if they can wear silk, then I, ha I have to wear a cape in this particular way. And then they wear the cape in this particular way. But he really does go through um, inventories of, of people's, he looks at wills and um, estates and, and, and does actually note that over, over the course of a century, there was a rise in the amount of garments owned by all social classes. He's looking at Paris. So it's not, um, he's not sort of armchair saying, yeah, this is, this is when fashion started. He's actually looking at inventory and, and, and realizing that as people are less and less stable in their social position, and as clothing because becomes a more and more important way in which to try to signal one's ascent socially, there really is um, an increase in the amount of garments worn by all social classes. So he's looking at aristocrats and lawyers and maids. There, he notes that there's also an underclass that have no property that he's not looking at. So it's not all classes. But it, it was an interesting study to me about the way in which um, people, cultures, yeah, when, and in the US, of course, we're constantly told that you can be anything and anyone and that your position is entirely plastic and it's not true, but it's very powerful illusion. And I think that is constantly exploited in advertising, not just, you know, um, among the millions of other things that are exploited, you know, like you will never find a mate if you don't, and <laughs> you will never get in shape if you don't. And also, yeah, you will never look professional if you don't. You will never achieve the career you wish if you don't buy X, Y, or Z. So I think it's incredibly potent psychological force that can be and is uh, picked up by advertising. Yeah, that's really fascinating. That sense that clothing is maybe it comes back to that kind of where it, where it plays a role economically too can be that expression of of ideals in a way that maybe other commodities are. And it's so trans, you know, it's literally wearable, transportable in a way that maybe other commodities aren't. It's really, yeah, super interesting. Well, I feel like I could honestly could talk about this all day. It's I absolutely love the book. It's incredible how you brought together so many different strands of thinking and stories into this, and really, really powerful overall. I wonder if I could wrap up with just asking you a bit about. I know you said earlier that um, it's hard to be asked to ask about solutions, so I won't kind of go down that route. But more in the sense of how how do you, as an individual, kind of approach your kind of selection of clothing and thinking about it at this point. And I'm sure it's something that's changed over time as well, because I know a lot of people listening will be thinking about um, what, what this might mean for how they kind of think about their own wardrobes. So yeah, I wonder if you could give us a little thoughts on, on that. Not that it's a sense that everyone should necessarily do this, but it's just interesting to get different people's opinions. Sure, yeah. With, with that caveat that this is not my uh, recommendation, I mean, I happen to be a person that truly loves being in a thrift store. It is a source of great pleasure to me to be in a thrift store. So um, I was in, I was living in Budapest last year and I got this sweater in a thrift store in Budapest. It's made in Norway. I, they have amaz amazing Norwegian sweaters and thrift stores in Budapest. So basically most of my clothes I get from thrift stores and that's because I love thrift stores. I find them very soothing. And um, when I can buy something new or when I, so I, I, I do sometimes buy new things. It doesn't happen very often, 
and it's I mean it's happened more in the last couple of years since I've gotten like more money to be honest you know like I it's like I'm getting into my late 30s I have like more to spend than I did in my 20s on clothing and I I try to I mean I don't know that I am doing it out of any ideal but I concentrated on like the one thing I really want and um I think for me that is usually something made by somebody that I know so that isn't always possible I guess you know but I think there are more people making clothes in one's general vicinity like if you look for them they are there I think in most communities um, at least in the US and I think in the UK I think that if you look around you will find people making really cool stuff so if if there is a way to support somebody and get something that's really special and probably um, very durable and likely to last much longer than something that you see on the internet, I, for me, it's worth it because, um, I mean, because, I, because first and foremost, it, it then provides me with something that I know I'm going to wear and love and appreciate for many years. But also in a small way, I, I feel that I'm supporting an ideal that I, believe in, which is that um, small producers should be able to make a living. So that's what I, I've been up to. And it does change a lot. And I don't have the answer, but I, I guess that's been my strategy lately. Great. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and for sharing some of the really fascinating research in the book. So for those of you watching, I hope the conversation has given you a window into some of the really amazing storytelling that is in the book. Um, and I really encourage you to get a hold of a copy. It's a fantastic read and there's just so many, so many different avenues to be explored within, within clothing. Um, you can find details of where and when to find the book um, in the chat. And please do stay tuned to RSA channels for more events like these and for updates on our research work. And you can hit the subscribe button on YouTube to visit the RSA website or visit the RSA website to find out more about what we're up to and how to get involved. And so all that remains is to say thank you again to Sophie Tannhauser and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.